Please listen carefully. Welcome to Christians in the Public Square with your hosts, Cole Bennett and Scott Self. Welcome. Thank you. Welcome to you. Thank you. Um, I think, uh, Cole, it'd be good for us to rehearse our three rules for the discourse that we engage in together, and the first being, sacred cows make great barbecue. And I believe the second one is, proudly let your flag fly. You say that so much better than I do. I have a hard time with that adverb. A lot of fricatives (laughs) going on there. Is that right? And the third is, bros before politicos. Um, I really did appreciate uh, Dr. Bacon coming to visit uh, last time. Wasn't she great? She's uh, so smart. Um, and I, I caught myself, um, I guess, on the outside of that conversation, feeling like uh, I was a, an eavesdropper of sorts, because it was clear that you, you both have differing perspectives on, on what news is and um, what fa- how, how rhetoric or persuasion is involved in even this, the, the telling of a simplest fact. You're right. In rhetoric studies, there just isn't a camp who says, over here is mere fact and over here is persuasion. They're just... When you engage in discourse, you are necessarily engaging in some type of persuasion that's common in rhetoric studies to talk about that. Well, and the the thing that maybe frustrates me about what you're saying is not what you, I, I, I understand your argument that every time we report anything, there is an editorial decision going on. Um, But let's take something like the boiling temperature of water at sea level. It is 100 degrees Celsius, period. There are not two sides to that discussion. If you have a different opinion, you're wrong because there is a right and there is a wrong. Yes, but there's also Fahrenheit. Yes. And so uh, your choice to talk about the centigrade number is a choice that identifies you in a certain way with listeners. Right. it used to frustrate me as a child listening to people talk about how how many meters something was, <laughs> right? right? And I'm like, okay, th- a meter's a little more than a yard. Say you it know. in American, right? Right. <laughs> and but identifying something in meters or the metric system identified you more as a world cosmopolite than did <laughs> inches and feet. So you're right. Water boils at a hundred degrees Celsius, but there's there will be text and context and subtexts right. when you say that. And I have an example that's pretty relevant right now in two ways. Now, I have to confess, I am not someone who watches MSNBC very often. I watch a lot of news, and I sometimes do watch it, but I've been reading articles about how MSNBC did not cover any of the Jesse Smollett story during its prime time when almost literally every other newscast was. Right. So they were not lying. They did not present non-facts as facts, but they made editorial decisions at the news station desk to not put those facts out during certain time slots. To me, that is making an argument. Also, I've, I've read several related to this incident how the word allegedly was not used whenever people were talking about the attacks on Jesse Smollett, then when it came out to be, in fact, a hoax, people started thinking about that. Mm. 
people who look at the news and compare news sources said, mm-hmm. funny how some people used alleged attack and some people just said the attack. And how that even uh, – we're no longer talking about whether it is true or false or a lie or the truth, but we're talking about how something was presented to the public. Right, how it's contextualized. Now, that makes a lot of sense. I, uh, you know, As a consumer of the news, one of the things that frustrates me is that we spend a lot of time going over whatever you know, a politician happened to have tweeted – Right, which to me seems uh, an editorial choice that doesn't. Um, it's already a fact. I can go and look on Twitter if I want to, and I don't want to. <laughs> right, <laughs> right? That, and I understand that there are arguments for for bringing that up, but it's not news because um, once you've reported on it, it's no longer news. But there is probably hmm. a, a, a value, some value. Uh, attached to reporting it, whether it's entertainment or whether it's shock or whether it's right that there's something that is compelling uh, the view uh, a number of viewers to tune in and find out um, what people think about what a politician has tweeted. Right, right, that's right. But it does bother me. I got to be honest with you. It does bother me when there's an app that apparently we're supposed to buy and there are commercials for it. And uh, there's a, w- one of the actors says it has news from both sides, <laughs> which I understand that there are editorial selections that are happening. But at the same time, um, there are not two sides to whether somebody has lied or not. There's either that they lied or that they told the truth. And I think um, we become too comfortable we become too comfortable saying everything is relative in a lazy way. And I think I'll talk about that a little bit later. But there is a way in which we can do that that is uh, where we throw our hands up and say, well, nobody can know anything. Right. To, that to me is very frustrating and late. Uh, insofar as it's lazy, it's very frustrating. Right. Um, but, okay, if everything is persuasion and if persuasion happens, can you describe instances where you feel like you have been um, – let's say, genuinely, genuinely persuaded towards something. An instance where you feel like because of the testimony of someone else or because of... Yeah, yeah I know. I'm thinking, I'm thinking about something you just said, though, which is causing me to hang. Okay. So before I get there, you said a moment ago, something is either the truth or it's not. Okay. And I want to just stop for one second and dwell on a great example that I hear used a lot. Okay, And the people who have listened to our other episodes know that you and I occupy different places on the political spectrum, but they're hard to pin down. Right. So I don't want this – my goal here is not to defend George Bush, but I want – George W. Bush, but I want to, to talk about for a moment. I heard in the, night, in the 2000s, I grew up hearing quite a bit after we launched troops – um, to depose Saddam Hussein in Iraq, in Iraq, that George Bush had lied, right? Because there were, in fact, no weapons of mass destruction there. Right. George Bush lied; people died. That was what a lot of people on the left were saying. My take of late has been: we sent troops to Iraq because they kicked out the weapons inspectors, and the United Nations had said we are going to hold Iraq to making sure that the weapons inspectors get to do their job, and if they get kicked out, they're in violation, and that will require action. 
He kicked out the weapons inspectors, and mm-hmm. the UN did nothing. And mm-hmm. George Bush said, this is why we are going to respond, because they have kicked out the weapons inspectors. Now, the rhetoric after that, when people say, but why are we doing this? Well, because we believe that there are probably weapons of mass destruction there. Our reports indicate there probably are, so there's a good chance, which to me is a point of argumentation toward the main reason why it was necessary to have weapons inspectors there. But the fulcrum event that sent us into Iraq was not that we knew for sure that there were weapons of mass destruction, but that he had kicked out the inspectors, which was a lever on the action, actionable plan of the United Nations who then chose to do nothing. So when people talk about that event, it's complicated and right. their levels, and they right. say, as a matter of fact, once we got in there, we saw there weren't any. Right. So the intelligence was wrong, which is different from George Bush knew it was wrong and lied. See what I mean? I what do. What we knew is that he, that uh, Saddam Hussein had kicked out the weapons inspector, inspectors. That was not something to be argued. No, I listen. Uh, you're not going to get an argument from me. And in fact, I reacted uh, with, uh, with defensively when you said that Obama lied about you can keep your doctor, right? Because it seems to me that there is a difference between a politician saying, I think X, Y, and Z is going to happen and it doesn't pan out. That is a very different thing than I did not pay a porn star uh, off. So <laughs> I didn't. <laughs> I did not pay off a porn star so that I could hide uh, uh, this affair, and in fact, I did. That's right. Right. And you've just identified the third thing that has changed my mind. So let's move to your next question, which instances where I have changed my mind. Yeah. My friendship with you has has made me understand, and I, this may not be um, satisfying to you in a moment, but I don't believe that President Obama knew that Obamacare would fail and lied anyway. I think he is not very smart economically. Okay. And that's different from lying. That's being mistaken about policy. I do not think he knew the ramifications and covered them up the way I did not pay a porn star might be happening right now. Right, right, right. So um, so my mind was changed after discourse with you about the difference between knowing something and knowingly lying and then being mistaken. A l- um, Less high-stakes example would be um, the Strengths Quest. Mm-hmm. Now, if those of you listening probably know about the Strengths Quest where you take this pretty complex test answering a lot of questions, and at the end, the test gives you a set of words that correspond to chapters in a book where you read what your personality proclivities are and your strengths of – not of character, but your strengths of – yeah, things, yeah, skills that come skills, naturally to you. Skills that come naturally. Yeah. For years, I naysayed that whole test. And I had friends here who really wanted me to take it. And I really said, look, I have Myers-Briggs. I, that's a verb. I'm, I have Myers-Briggs <laughs> myself to death. I am tired of taking tests that tell me who I am. So finally, a man who's a dear friend of mine, Wayne, he said, I will pay for the test, and I will buy you the book if you'll just do it. And I couldn't say no to that because he's my friend. And when I took that test and it spit out the words, um, the two words that came as most important in my profile were connector and maximizer. And I thought, huh. Then I got the book out that he had bought me, 
and read all that that meant. And I thought, I am reading as if someone interviewed me for hours and wrote exactly who I am as a person in these pages. It was beyond uncanny. It was dead on. So my mind was changed from one of pretty cynical, reactionary naysaying to someone who became quite a believer in that test. Yeah, so so the fact that there were that this was based upon a sample of almost 300,000 subjects was not compelling to you. I didn't care to find that out. Right. But the the fact that Wayne That's thought right. it was a great idea, which is by the way very rational. There are some who would account that as irrational, but it is extremely rational because you understand the value of a, of his testimony more than um you understand the value of the statistics because the because there are so many things that are based upon samples of 300,000 that don't pan out. But I'm guessing when Wayne makes recommendations, he's usually right for you, right? Yes. He his... says, eat this food, eat at this <laughs> restaurant. It's so great. Watch this movie. It's so great. You have a track record with Wayne that at a certain point, he's earned those bona fides with you. That's right. And you're absolutely right. He's earned those with me. And the fact that he um, is a life, a trained systems counselor who understands things behind that strengths quest mechanism that I don't know about and didn't don't care to find out about. He did know. And I trusted him when he said, this is legitimate. But I want to tell you something about why you're a good person, why that means you're a good person. <laughs> okay. Because... Um, there are always we're always interacting with criteria of justification and trying to figure out which criteria are most relevant to whether I build knowledge or not or how I build knowledge. We're always interacting with these different criteria. We're always weighing them and 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 judging them. But if you have the mindset that says, um, if the right scenario comes al- happens along, then I will be open to changing my mind. That is a very different position. Then, uh, then assuming you already knew that it was going to be junk, right? Mm-hmm. It's just that the testimonies you were hearing elsewhere were not compelling. Right. Right? But that doesn't mean it was that you had already made a decision. Right. You just so far had not been convinced. That is a, I think that's a noble place to be. That's hard work position. Say more about why it's hard work. Well, you're going to have to, in order to hold that position, you're going to have to keep your mind open and continue to process data. You have to keep listening to people arguing something you don't agree with. You yeah. have to listen to you have to listen to Bob say you should take Strength Quest, and you say, no, that's stupid. And then you have <laughs> to listen to Larry say you should take Strength Finders. It's two now. You have to say. It, no, thank you. But you have to listen to each person bring it up instead of walking around with a sign that says, don't talk to me about strength finders, right? <laughs> right. Um, and, and so, uh, I mean, I'm being silly, but there is a way in which um, I think a lot of us are, are have our opinions about things. We, we've talked about this politically. I'm guessing I'm probably not going to be transformed overnight into a, a free market libertarian. That's probably not going to happen. But can you do the hard work of saying the jury is still out, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. And and engage with and listen to and receive 
um, uh, feedback in places where uh, from places where you might not agree. Listen to sources of information and listen to sets of facts that you might not be able to to um, uh, explain or um, in any way synthesize into your point of view, right? Right. And that's that the last thing you said is very important because if I hold a certain set of really important values and characteristics and I hold them in a careful balance, then new information that I know I'll need to synthesize somewhere but I don't know where yet, I have to hold it and without final judgment yet. That's right. And the more of those you hold, the more energy it takes. Yes. Right? That's right. Um, right. I mean, it would be satisfying. I There are times where... There are times where I look at the, you know, at the certainty that certain people live in and I mm-hmm. am jealous just because that is – it seems like it must be uh, an easy way of living <laughs> to already have everything figured out because I spend so much time listening to uh, – I mean listening to, to facts and listening to data that may not comport with my point of view. And um, I know you would probably say there's a whole lot and there's a reason for that, but there, you know, there, you do have to listen to things that um, you have to listen to people who have, who are smart, who have something to say about the way you think, and it might not be um, supportive. This is the same thing with watching, for example, news or, you know, there are certain channels of the news that if I watch them, it just feels like work. Yeah. I'm guessing that's MSNBC for you. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you know, for me to watch Fox, it's a it takes so much effort. But I have to do that effort if I'm going to be a good person. Yes, because we want to understand carefully and hospitably what people that might disagree with us, how they arrived at their position, even if we disagree with it in a moment, we need to understand how they got there without assuming that they're idiots well, or unworthy. Unworthy, right. Yeah. yeah. Uh, um, and – or that they're of uh, a poor character right. because they believe um, believe something different. And that's been – I mean I'll say for, you know, for you and me, we grew up in a pretty conservative branch of evangelicalism mm-hmm. where theologically we were told what the answers were and – there was not room to have questions about them. Do you know what I mean? Yes. I think a lot of evangelicals live in that universe where you are told, um, you know, to believe in, and I don't want to pick on anyone. <clears throat> I don't want to pick on anyone, but well, there were a number that we had lessons over and over <laughs> again. And I can just quote you book, chapter, and verse about how we're supposed to understand, um, you know, some esoteric point of doctrine, and, and unless you can get to that belief, you're out. Or you and I have looked at the ways that some Christian universities, their, uh, their statements of faith, right? Mm-hmm. You must believe this and this and this and this and this to work here. There's something to, to me that is uh, uh, scary about the kind of intellectual laziness where you said, I, I've already got it all figured out. Mm-hmm. I went, when I went to, to, to graduate school, I was 
you know, I was tempted to go. There was a there was a school I was really interested in attending, but I had to sign a confession of faith before I started the program. Yeah. That seems backwards. It was. I, I, that's why I couldn't go. Yeah. I can't sign your statement of faith. What if I change my mind? Mm-hmm. And there's no opportunity to change your mind, right? Right. Um, and that is a that is a function of fundamentalism, and that can happen religiously. It can happen politically. It can happen in in any form of our worldview. It can be we can be fundamentalists where we refuse to even have conversations or listen to different sources of data that may not comport with our point of view. And, you know, it's striking me just now as you're saying this that I've been familiar with several Christian universities in my time, and there seem to be two large groups of students and or their parents who select the university, either those who assume my child or I, if it's a student, will go there and only be reinforced, and those who say, I have questions that I want to find answers to, and I want to explore them in this university. And those are very different That's reasons right. for attending a Christian college that I'm sure the others, they're each shocked with the other side when they get there. That's right. And one would not be comfortable at the other institution, <laughs> right? Right. <laughs> right. That's right. Um, well, I keep, I keep hinting at this, but one of the things that um, I'm, I'm hinting at is a kind of frustration I have with evangelicalism. And I think the ways that evangelicals have of late uh, entered the public square, and it's what I'll call kind of a lazy agnosticism. Hmm. Um, now, uh, I am more than willing to discuss forms of agnosticism that are, cr- that are um, rigorously attained. Right, I think I think there are ways in which we would we we've actually been talking about this. Where uh, I think it takes a lot of work to be open to the possibility I might be wrong. There is a rigor that's involved in that process that uh, I find. That's why I that's why I say you're a good person for being willing to allow Wayne to talk you into. Not because you took strength finders. Not it doesn't have anything to do with that. It has to do with being a person who can be talked into. Um, a, a different point of view if the testimony is set right. That's a different position than the one that um, – well, you have this, this setting in John where Pilate is um, officiating the, the trial of Jesus, at least his part of the trial of Jesus. And, you know, the chief priests and the lawyers and the, uh, are all crying out, you know, we need you to crucify Jesus and give us Barabbas instead. And there comes one part where he's talking with Jesus directly. And Christ answers in all kinds of cryptic ways as he does, you know. And there comes some point where uh, Pilate gets exasperated and he says, what is truth? And that is, not this, that is not a phrase that's coming from a man of God. It's coming from Pilate, right? Uh, although he does immediately then turn to try and release Jesus, but um, it's kind of an exasperated um, kind of cynicism that there is no such thing as truth. And what frustrates me right now is I am hearing those voices of Christians in the public square saying, eh, we can't really know. We can't really know because you know, who knows if there's uh, – take any position. Who knows if there's global warming? There's news on both sides. So uh, so I don't have to care about it. I don't have to care. Right. Who uh, knows where life begins? 
Yeah, so I don't have to care. So I don't have to care. Yeah. And that's lazy. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I'm surprised that I'm hearing it for the very reason I was just saying a few minutes ago that I, I think we grew up in a context that said, no, here is truth and the truth is this way. And now to be confronted with a, a kind of lazy man's out to say, oh, well, uh, you know, who knows what the, you know, the news is just full of a bunch of lies, so I'm not going to believe anything. Which, if you really unpack the argument, you're going to hate this, but if you really unpack the argument is, who can know anything? So I'm going to go ahead and be a white supremacist. Right. <laughs> really? Right. I'm going to vote for this white supremacist. Or, who can know anything? So I'm going to go ahead and uh, vote for this uh, politician who's uh, uh, supporting abortion because I don't even want to think about it. Right. Right. Which, keep in mind, I do vote for politicians who affirmatively uh, support abortion. And I disagree with them. But that is a different thing from throwing my hand up and say, who can know? Right. Who can know? And I, I'm frustrated that, um, uh, that in too many instances, I feel like that's the way that we, I'm speaking of Christians, that we engage the public square is by asserting a kind of lazy man's agnosticism so that we don't have to – agnosticism means not knowing, uh, lack of knowledge, right? Right. Um, because we just won't, we're not willing to kind of wrestle with the criteria of justification. We're not real, we're not willing to, uh, to be open. We're actually being closed. We're being closed and not even having a conversation. So this might be a good point for you to state explicitly what we were talking about before we started, which was the difference between skepticism and cynicism. Yeah. So I think that, I think that's where it comes down to for me is, you know, cynicism is uh, is a a way of well, there are a number of definitions of cynicism, by the way. Uh, but uh, for me, when I'm talking in this context, uh, cynicism is a way of um, just assuming that there is no such thing as truth towards some darker end, right? Whether it's the, a nihilistic end. Yeah, nihilism is a great. Uh, that there is no such thing as truth. There is no, uh, so I can do whatever I want, right? Mm-hmm. But I'm a Christian. I can't do whatever I want. I've said this before. I'm a Christian. I don't have free speech. I know the the state says I have free speech, but Jesus doesn't say I have free speech. So I don't have uh, options that the world. I think nihilism is an option for the non-believer. Mm-hmm. It's not an option for me. It's not. Um, I don't know that I can always get at what the truth is, and I'm going to struggle with it, and I'm going to argue with my brothers and sisters, but that is a very different thing than throwing my hands up and deciding I'm going to go ahead and do whatever it is I wanted to do anyway. Part of what I think is driving that cynicism is a set of beliefs that we don't want to criticize in Christianity. It's no longer, in the culture that we live in, it's difficult to have conversations about tolerance because we've been intolerant. So we get judged in that conversation, right? Um, And I do hear a number of instances where I believe that we spend our time worrying about whether we're being judged, what people are saying about us, how people are treating us as though that's the biggest thing to be concerned about Mm -hmm. 
rather than living out the testimony of the gospel in the world around us, that's a very different priority than keeping the church pure or defending the faith from uh, people who might say bad things about it. Mm -hmm. Um, If we've been racist, then let's call it out. I'm not... I'm not asserting that we have been. I'm just saying, if we have been, let's call it out. Let's have a discussion about it. Not d- Defending ourselves against it's not fair because uh, that's not our job. Our job is not to defend ourselves. Our job is to embrace restoration and, and uh, the new creation that comes uh, through, uh, through death and resurrection. So when I get accused, when I, when we as Christians get accused of having done something wrong in the public square or had a wrong position... Um, for example, we were, we were the ones who were making a big noise about whether people should be interracial couples should be able to marry. We were on the wrong side of that history. We being evangelical Christians in the modern era? Yeah. Okay. We were on the wrong side of that. And it should be okay for us to accept that and say, oops, we're people of the gospel who are informed by the gospel. Which means that when we uh, have discovered that we are in error, we confess our sins and receive the, the, the mercy that comes on the other side of that and the resurrection that comes on the other side of that. But uh, so much of what I, what I think is going on with cynicism then is a, a kind of – instead of confessing that something is wrong or confronting facts that are uncomfortable for us, we just simply – uh, obviate them or push them aside. That's why I mean it's lazy. Yeah, it sounds like all the work that you were just talking about of having to discern whether you have been a participant in bad things, right. whether you have embraced or supported or even rallied for right. things that you're now ashamed of or that we have a bad history with, that's much harder work than merely being cynical. And I'll, I'll give you that the public square is not good at having these conversations. Just recently, we've had, uh, Cheryl was mentioning this, uh, I don't know when you're listening to the podcast right now, but just recently we had the, you know, the Virginia situation with uh, several politicians wearing blackface in, uh, in the 80s, right? Right. Well, um, our, our culture is not good at giving space for someone to say, uh, I really am ashamed of that and uh, um, I'm, I'm attempting to be a better person. Right. So I'll agree that our culture has uh, our the public square is not necessarily a conducive place for confessing your sins. Right. But we should be better at it than anyone else. That's what I'm saying. We Christians, we should be better at it. We should be able to model that for the community and say, "Yeah, here's a mistake I've made." But we don't do that. I'll give you an example. As a preacher, I was there was never a time where I could stand up in front of the congregation as the preacher and say, "Just so y'all know, I have such and such sin in my life I haven't gotten I haven't gotten done with yet." Right? And I would appreciate some help and yeah. your prayers if, and talk to me about it and If I have cancer, I could talk about that right, to the congregation. Right, right. But if I'm an alcoholic, which I wasn't, but if I'm an alcoholic, I can't bring that up to the congregation unless I got it kicked. Right? Right. right. Because this is not a place for people to confess. We're not a confessing church. There have been times historically where the church has been confessing. I think they're powerful moments. The, uh, the, the confessing church of Germany in the early part of the, uh, the 20th century, I think, was a powerful, powerful movement and standing up for what was right in godly ways. But those are, those are exceptions, not the rule, especially when we have an opportunity to sit at the table of power. So these things you've been talking about stand in contrast to cynicism in what ways? So cynicism is uh, 
did you ever see the film, The Mission, the last lines of The Mission, the world is thus, and he goes, no, thus have we made the world, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. The, the world is thus, that we just kind of accept that this is the way things are, or this is the way the world is. That's a kind of cynicism that I find way too lazy. Yeah. Be able to say, um, we have made the world this way, and to, and to embrace the responsibility and then try to figure out how to fix it. Or that we have made the world this way, and we as... Uh, you know, the, the, the keepers of agape, the people who understand what, uh, what gospel is really about, have an opportunity to help guide the world in a different direction in, in, in light of its pain, right? We can take on responsibility. I'm not saying we take, res- I'm not saying the church is blameworthy, right? I'm saying that the church has an opportunity to take on responsibility. I, there's a, a, one of the podcasts I love to listen to, um, uh, it's called Back to Work. They uh, they had an episode just uh, recently where they were talking about this has nothing to do with Christianity in public square, but they were talking about good employees at 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 a, like a grocery store <laughs> yeah. who understand the difference between responsibility and um, blameworthiness, right? If you're not happy because somebody uh, dropped a jar of jelly on aisle nine, and you go and you tell one of the employees about it. They might not have been the person who dropped the jelly jar on the floor, but they're still going to go clean it up. It's not my fault, but it's my responsibility. Yeah, yeah. And uh, there is a way in which I think that could be definitive of the church in the public square to where we could say, it's not my fault. Racism is not our fault, but it's my responsibility. I can do something about it. I can clean up the jelly jar on aisle seven. Mm. Um, And... So uh, I think cynicism is just to say it's not my fault. The world is thus. And I think, uh, uh, I think that's an empty approach. I think that's unsatisfactory at best and lazy at worst. Having said that, that's different than a kind of skepticism where you say, I'm not jumping off the bridge with every Tom, Dick, and Harry who has something to, to tell me. I'm listening carefully in the public square, but I'm not – uh, I'm not just swallowing every hook uh, that comes my direction just because it happens to have a juicy worm on it. Right. And I think that's what we try to develop in our students who come to university to understand the language arts at a different level. One of the places I take my students to understand this concept is a discussion of ancient Greece during the time of Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, and so forth. This is an oversimplification, but it's helpful, I find. When people study Plato, the word they come up with the most, I think, is idealist. Mm -hmm. He was furious Mm -hmm. that there were people teaching persuasion to to young boys who had money because the goal of the sophists was to teach them to be persuasive no matter what the truth was. And Plato was furious, saying all that matters is capital T truth. The truth. And anything you do to disrupt it is immoral. And this was 400 BCE. This was before Jesus was on the scene to Mm -hmm. talk about morality. Mm -hmm. Aristotle, his student, on the other hand, when the, the text on rhetoric, which it's hard to say Aristotle wrote because it's just his students wrote it down and we have it stapled together. So their notes. Their notes. <laughs> but Aristotle's on rhetoric did not take a position on Plato's beef. Aristotle's goal was to say, 
I'm just going to write down what's happening. I'm going to categorize it. I'm going to explain it. I'm going to tell you when you're seeing it in the public square. So you have Plato, the idealist, Aristotle, the, the scientist, trying to categorize it all down. But there's another guy that um, I really like the most, and his name was Isocrates. And Isocrates, we call the skeptic. I say we. This is scholars in our field. Mm-hmm. Isocrates said, well, I see the point that there is the persuaded truth, so perhaps little t truth. There's what you can persuade people to believe and do and act and think, but we should always do this for the good of the community. Oh, and that was the capital T? That was the capital C. He said, if you're going to persuade people toward things that are less than the capital T truth, in other words, he admitted there was situational times when you would persuade people um, for your own behalf, but we should always be doing that for the good of the community, oh, got you. not for merely the individual good. So Isocrates understood Plato and understood Aristotle trying to take these a heavy ideological stand plus a purely scientific stand, and he said there's something in the middle, and that is making sure that when you do persuade people that it's for the good of everyone. Again, this was before Jesus came on the scene, which right. I'm fascinated by because he – Isocrates had a profound sense of communal morality, uh-huh. right? So skepticism, I believe, I tell my students, is that ability to stand in the middle when you're hearing arguments from all sides to abide in the gray area and mm-hmm. say, I'm hearing lots of arguments. I'm going to decide which ones are persuasive, and I'm going to decide, if I can, what the motives are, and I'm going, and it, it's just holding... An, not being, as you said, someone who believes in everything you hear hook, line, and sinker. Yeah. What do you think gets in the what, – what ends up being challenges to good skepticism? I mean, if you think about the ways that we're developing students, Yeah. what are some of the challenges that, that they run across when they're trying to understand what it means to be a critical thinker and what it means to engage in, in healthy, form, healthy, healthy forms of skepticism? Got a couple answers for you may surprise you. Okay. I think we're living at the tippity-top of Maslow's hierarchy. Yeah. I think our students are, they have, like I do, we have what we need. Mm -hmm. We're going to have three square meals today. We're going to sleep out of the elements. We're going to have our heart's desires taken care of. We're going to laugh, be able to check mail at any second of the day, be able to see what's going on. And so I am very impatient about uh, about standing somewhere and evaluating several things coming at me. Right. No, I, I understand that. I would, uh, you know, when you look at historically the way that theology has developed over time, many times the places where theology is developing are pretty dark moments of the plague, you know, and we're going to survive, and how do we understand the plague? And that's different than uh, having a lot of free time to listen to a bunch of German theologians, right? Right. Um, so it defe- uh, we, when, when, uh, when we have kind of everything we need, when we're not fighting, when there aren't wolves at our door, that does present a new kind of challenge, doesn't it? And really um, being critical because don't, we don't, we have the luxury not to be critical. The stakes are low. Yeah. If I believe something hook, line, and sinker, or if I let something go by that's the absolute best truth around, 
meh, what's going to happen to me? You know, I'm going to say this as a socialist. That's my criticism of most socialists, American socialists, is that it's just an easy academic uh, uh, thought exercise that really has no stakes. Yeah, that's a very – say more. Well – That's really um, – of course just, I would say that's yeah. smart. <laughs> well, my, my, I guess where I'm coming from is that there are a number of uh, uh, folks speaking in the public square about socialism – that have just easy pat answers that that don't have to stand the test. Um, you know, everyone should get free health care. Where we're all of a sudden going to have to talk about how that's actually going to raise Cole's taxes, mm-hmm. right? And I don't, I don't hear a lot of people uh, in the public square saying, uh, you're, "We need to do this thing, and it's going to cost you X," because we don't have to talk about the cost. We never will. We'll just keep talking about the idea. Right. And this is going to sound really old man of me. I'm <laughs> saying that. I, this really does. I, my goodness, I can hear people. But we, I think what we're seeing in my lifetime is the result of young people going through high school and college where economics classes are no longer part of the standard curriculum. Even government. Even government. That's right. right. That's yeah. right. I, when I hear someone say, I don't care what the national debt number is, it makes no sense to me. Yeah. We've always had it. What possible – it doesn't matter. I cringe because I'm wondering how I can get in and talk about it if they even want to listen or how that's, how that's possible. They don't even have an, an informed stance on it except to say, I don't know what it is and I don't care much about it. So I'm going to come back to that in a second. I know. Uh, <laughs> no, 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 no. I'm going to support it. Oh, you're going to yeah, support it. But, wow. but I want you to tell me. What's you, today? You said, <laughs> yeah. you said one of the problems is Maslow's hierarchy of needs yeah. that gets in the way of students understanding what it means to develop a healthy form of skepticism. That's right. What are some others? Because, uh, yeah. Uh, some other things are uh, just, I would call it embodied impatience. Um, I teach English. And assigning 50 pages a night of reading is excruciating <laughs> for my students. It's excruciating. Yeah. What do you mean? I have all these things to do. I have Netflix. I have mm-hmm. – and I just remember coming through school and the number of pages that I read. You know, So rampant impatience is yeah. another one. By the way, the internet went out in our house yesterday, and so I couldn't work because I, you know, my, I teach online, and so I couldn't uh, work. And um, also the TV was out, and I was like, what am I going to do tonight? <laughs> there are these things on the <laughs> shelf that I, I haven't opened in a while. And yeah. Okay, also I think our students um, have never known war closely. Yeah. And so the degree to which they mm. understand how horribly things can go. Yeah is it's a small range. That's right. A small range of motion. We were having dinner at my house uh, just, um, well, you were there just before Christmas. Oh, yeah. And uh, one of our colleagues was, uh, who's a little older than us, we were talking about the, you know, the state of the world and, and how terrible everything is. And he said, you know what? I remember the 60s. You know, I remember Vietnam. I remember... Um, uh, can't stay. I remember those things. I remember the the Democratic Convention in Chicago. We're not in the same place we used to be. I remember Martin Luther King Jr. being assassinated. Yeah. We're not in the same place we used to be. This is not the worst it's ever been. But 
for those of us who are younger, especially, uh, I mean, we're not that young, but we're young enough to where political assassination, the closest we got was Reagan, right? Right. And it all turned out okay. Right. Um, and I'm not saying we haven't had our hard times. 9-11 was a rough day. But my point is that uh, we, we do get to kind of remove ourselves from a lot of – and in that, we assume that everything is terrible, that everything is the worst just because we've lost kind of the sense of history or the, the immediacy of how terrible things could be. Right. Yeah. Right. I want to um, come back. I told you I was going to circle back around uh, to something about rigor and um, – and that willingness to kind of engage in the difficult. Mm-hmm. I went. I mentioned this a little bit last time uh, with um, uh, Dr. Bacon about the Apology of Timothy. The Apology of Timothy is a, a seventh century, I think, a seventh century um, document where this man Timothy is defending Christianity to a uh, to a Muslim king and making the argument: "We're your best citizens." And the argument is really fascinating. We're your most ethical citizens. We're your, uh, we're your kindest citizens. You know, we take care of other people and each other, and you don't have to worry about us, and we follow the law. And there are all these things that he says that are pretty precious. But one of the things that I think makes that we have an opportunity to focus upon is also this willingness to be rigorous. Here's what I mean. That we engage in skepticism in rigorous ways as opposed to lazy ways. We mm-hmm. say, I, okay, I'm, I'm going to read something that I don't necessarily agree with. We have the freedom to do that. And we have the willingness to engage in the harder work of listening to people that we might not want to listen to or listening to data that we might not want to listen to. I'm not telling you that every Christian has to be against global warming. I am, but I don't think every Christian has to be worried about it. I think every Christian who's worthy of the name has to be rigorous in the way they engage that conversation. And that's a totally different stance, right? Right. And And I think we owe it to ourselves and we owe it to the people around us to be the best at things. This used to be us. This used to be, we used to be the ones who made sure people were learning to read, right? Because we felt like that that rigor was meaningful and useful to the, to the public. And I think that's something that we have to embrace and say, uh, I'm, I'm, willing to, I'm willing to read a book when the internet goes down, to read a, a book or watch a documentary or listen to an argument that um, I might not be in any way uh, imagine myself persuaded by, Right. Yeah. That's what I mean by rigorous. Yeah, and you're making me think of there's a qualitative difference if I have a neighbor who waves his hand and goes, ah, <laughs> when I say global warming, and when a person who says, you know what, I've read a lot about that, and I'm at a different place from you, but I know what you're talking about, and I'll read more if I can. Yeah. Um, That's a different ethos presence of a person representing what he or she represents. I find myself trying to model that for my students, where instead of just saying, uh, yeah, I've read that article too, and I picked this up from you, where I turn to the student and say, tell me what you learned from that. Talk to me about this, right? A student says, I've been researching global warming. I had a I had a freshman last semester say, I've been looking at this for a long time and studying this for a long time. (laughs) (laughs) Right. But even then, my my question was, tell me what you learned. Right. Right? Give me some – and it's not because – it's not because I'm better than everyone else, but I do think that we have to model that practice uh, first. I agree. 
I agree. And one of my one of my favorite podcasts is Econ Talk with Russ Roberts. Mm. And Russ is well, he would call himself a classical liberal, uh, and he treats guests on his show with such kindness when I know and all of his listeners know he disagrees and and so I've he models that as well and one we're on global warming and I heard him you, we started this podcast by you're asking me when have I ever changed my mind mm-hmm. and global warming is something that is um, it's a complicated topic mm-hmm. for me and so I've I held the position for a long time. I do believe that the temperatures on the earth are changing. That is something that to me is evident. The degree to which humans are contributing sure. is a question mark. And the degree to which that should create policy that affects me sure. is a question mark. But then I heard Russ talking to someone who was a staunch advocate. And I heard Russ say, you know, my, I, I believe that it, the planet is changing. Um, I believe humans have some role, but I don't know, and I'm still listening for it. I'm still reading and researching and listening. And I thought, man, that is the model for me, someone who I respect so much, who had such the opportunity for his audience to say, and I believe this, but who didn't and said, I'm not sure, and I'm still researching it. That was big. There's a difference between persuading your audience toward a specific – point of view and persuading your audience to ask deeper questions. Right. Those are two different ends. And to look at methodologies on studies. Yeah. I mean, that's something you and you do very well. And I try to get my students when we're talking about qualitative and quantitative studies. Well, that's why they have the methodology section. So you can see what it means when they say that this yeah. was an N or this, this happened. This was a count for this action. How are they counting it? What are they doing? Being skeptical enough to go into the weeds of methodology is different from being cynical that nothing matters. That's right. And lazy. And lazy. And lazy. I'm just, if there's anything I'm trying to get at today, it's don't be lazy. Though I don't anticipate changing your mind anytime soon about your political philosophy. I'm much more uh, interested in having that conversation when when we can talk about it and uh, and share and not feel like we're not supposed to talk about it. Or that it doesn't matter if we never talk about it again. Yeah.